Hello! Hi! Welcome to Truly Fabulously Monstrous. A podcast about true crime and cryptids. I'm one of your hosts, Hattie James. I am your other host, Kevin. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Hattie. Sorry, I yawned as I was saying hi, Kevin. <laughs> it's okay. No, see, you said that. That's going to make me yawn in like five seconds. I'm sorry! <laughs> and now all of our listeners are yawning. Oh god. And now I'm yawning again. <laughs> this, is what, this is what happens when we record at night. Oh god. Is what else are we gonna record? Good point. Uh, <laughs> uh okay. uh, yeah. It's a true crime episode and since Eddie told an awesome story about vampires earlier this week, uh now I get to tell you about a murdery, a murdery happenstance. I love the murdery happenstances. And the crimeness. Uh, okay, so I will put a heads up possible trigger warning for some people right off the bat. This is going to involve children. So if that's not something you want to listen to, sorry. Okay, let's jump right into this. Uh, this is kind of long and a little bit convoluted because uh, this is uh, one I've actually wanted to cover for long time because I don't think I've ever heard it covered in another or at least of the podcasts that I listen to I have not heard anyone cover this yet okay so I'm gonna do it <laughs> okay um this is also the subject of my very favorite and rule book of all time and so I'm going to tell you about Deborah Green I actually don't know this one I don't think do I okay I, I don't might... know do you <laughs> No, if you said no co- podcast has covered it that you know of, and the only two crime podcasts I listen to you got me into, then no, I don't know this one. Um, right. I mean, it's very possible that one of them did cover this, because, I mean, Karen and Georgia have been doing this for a while now, and I don't remember everything they've covered. They might have covered this, and I forget. But, either way. I know, I know a lot of crimes by what happened and not by the the names of the people because a lot of times when crimes are very heinous I try to forget the names of the the criminals because I don't think they deserve the people who did it and focus on the yeah yeah so Um, I might know this one but set the scene for me okay imagine this in your head It's 1995 it's just outside Kansas City Missouri you're a young child and you're asleep in your bed okay your two siblings are each asleep in their own respective rooms and you're all starting to feel the stress of watching your parents go through a very stressful divorce, but you feel safe knowing that your mother is somewhere in the house. Okay. And then you wake up and you see your room is filling with smoke. Oh, There's no. a fire in your house and this fire is already out of control. You crawl through your bedroom door. You try to call your siblings, but the smoke is too thick to really get any purchase on where they are. So you close your door, you use the phone in your room to call 911, and then you climb out of your bedroom window onto the roof of the garage. And as you're on the roof of your burning house, you can see your mother in the grass below you. and She's calling out to you to jump to her. So you manage to land safely on the ground. You both run to your neighbor's house, and the fire department arrives and they begin to work. Then you learn the worst news you've ever received your brother and sister did not make it out of the house. Oh no. But both of your parents are safe. 
and you're safe, and the rest of your family is drawing together to help you heal from this terrible tragedy. And then you learn that one of your parents is not who you thought they were. No. So let's back up a few decades (laughs) and set the scene of a couple named Joan Purdy and Bob Jones. They were high school sweethearts from a Midwestern town. And they married young. Joan was 18. Bob was 17. Joan was a brilliant student who obtained a scholarship in the late 1940s to attend Stevens College in Columbia, Missouri, which is a prestigious women's college. Okay. But despite entering Stevens College as a freshman, she felt out of place among the other students were wealthy and they sported the latest fashions and she was attending on a partial scholarship and she also had to work part time to make up the cost difference. So she felt out of place among her the other students. So she got tired of holding herself to the ideals of her wealthy classmates. Uh, she was homesick and Ultimately, she dropped out of college and moved back to Havana, Illinois, and she accepted Bob's marriage proposal. Okay. Like I said, they're very young. They're teenagers. She had their first daughter in the year following the marriage, and then less than two years later, they had Deborah uh, on February 28, 1951. Um, most sources seem to concur that even though they married young, in the late 40s, early 50s, Joan and Bob had a pretty happy marriage. Uh, it was pretty stereotypically 1950s. Bob earned the money. Joan kept the house and raised the children. Uh, whether it was the case that they really were that happy or whether it was because it was the 50s and no one talked about any issues and just put on like a happy front for outsiders uh, is unclear. But the marriage lasted and they were still together. Uh, approaching their 50th anniversary. Um, but this isn't a story about Joan and Bob. This is a story about their second child, Deborah. Like her mother, Deborah was a very highly intelligent child. One source I found said that she taught herself how to read and write before she was three years old. Oh, wow. So, yeah, that's uh, that's showing some intellect, I would say. Yeah, um, I'd say so. <laughs> As a student, she participated in a lot of extracurricular activities in addition to regular school and stuff. Uh, She was pushed by her parents, particularly by her mother, to pursue perfection as far as her studies were concerned. Um, So it's possible that although uh, Joan was happy enough in her marriage, she maybe harbored some resentment about giving up her education and returning into marriage and started to live vicariously through the brilliance of her children. She wanted both her children to get a college education and have careers, but she especially pushed the idea of success at any cost on Deborah. Totally not toxic at all. Yeah, and yet it happens a lot. Deborah was a National Merit Scholar. Uh, She was the co-valedictorian of her class. Anyone who knew her as a student was convinced that she was someone who would be incredibly successful. So she was very intelligent, straight-A student. However, she did that thing that I did all through high school because she was smart and and stuff came easily to her. She didn't form good study habits. Yeah, I know that feeling. Yeah. So um, this is from uh, Anne Rule's book, Bitter Harvest. Deborah was, in truth, a lazy student, but it didn't matter. She was so smart, she didn't have to exert herself, not even to make straight A's. If she heard it once, she heard it a thousand times. 
she was a genius. So me. A couple people. Except not a genius. Just (laughs) the lazy student. Same. I was like, oh, I don't need to study because I'm passing and, in fact, getting really good grades without studying. So I don't need to study. And then I got to college and I was like, oh, no, I don't know how to study. Yeah. My life. (laughs) After high school in the fall of 1969, she attended the University of Illinois. And she majored in chemistry. And she graduated in 1972. While she was at the University of Illinois, she met Dwayne Green, who was an engineer, and she dated him throughout her undergrad. From there, she attended medical school at the University of Kansas School of Medicine, choosing emergency medicine as her specialty. And after her graduation in 1975, she began a residency in the Truman Medical Center Emergency Room in Kansas City, Missouri. During her time at the University of Kansas, Deborah and Duane got married. They lived together in Missouri during Deborah's residency, but uh, in 1978, they had separated and gotten an amicable divorce, citing basic incompatibility as the reason for their separation. Okay. And this is when she met Michael Farrar, who was a student in his final year of medical school. Michael was captivated by Deborah's intelligence and general passion, while Deborah found Michael to be a stable and dependable, grounded individual. Uh, so, not long after Deborah and Dwayne's divorce, Deborah married Michael Farrar in May of 1979. I have a feeling this doesn't end well. You would be correct. Okay. (laughs) We'll get there. Okay. After their marriage and after Michael finished medical school, the couple moved to Ohio, where Michael had been accepted for an internal medicine residency at the University of Cincinnati. In Cincinnati, Deborah went into practice at a Jewish hospital in Cincinnati, and... I did look it up, and that's just the name of the hospital is Jewish Hospital. Creative. Yeah. Uh, she was an emergency physician, but uh, she wasn't really satisfied with this career path, so she switched specialties and began a second residency in internal medicine. And as such, she ended up in the same program as her husband at the University of That's always a good so idea. So they're both doing residencies in internal Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now it's by now it's the 1980s and the Ferrars are established in Cincinnati, Ohio. Deborah suffers from several medical issues, uh, including uh, she had surgery for an infection in her wrist. She has suffered from migraines and insomnia. Okay. Despite these issues, uh, they conceived their first child, Timothy. He was born in January of 1982. Deborah took six weeks of maternity leave, then returned to her fellowship in hematology and oncology at the University of Cincinnati. Okay. Two years later, they had their second child, Kate, and again, Deborah returned to her studies after a very brief maternity now, leave. Now, was it brief because she was a work like she wanted to get back to work, or was it brief because you know maternity leave laws? I don't know. None of the sources I was looking at specified one way or the other, but just based on the personality she had, I would say it was the former, like the she just wanted to get back to work. But like I said, none of the sources really specified one way or the other. 
the, the way the way you worded it just sounded very much i you probably got it from your sources and sounded very like skewed against her so i'm just like was it like oh my god this terrible woman didn't even want to stay with her newborn kid or was it like the state did not protect her and give her the paid leave to do so <laughs> because like vermont currently right now while they're trying to put laws into place to make maternity leave better right now in vermont women are only guaranteed six weeks of unpaid maternity leave I mean, if I had to guess, I would say it was probably a combination of the two, because like I said, she's doing a fellowship in two different specialties, and I know I would be like, I love you, child, but also I'm spending a lot of money to get this fellowship here, and I need to focus. Like I said, it's what attracted Michael to her. She was very passionate. She was very, like, gung-ho, let's do this, let's get stuff done. So by 1985, she had finished her fellowship and went into private practice in hematology and oncology, and Michael was finishing his final year of a cardiology fellowship. Uh, At the end of Michael's fellowship, they both joined established medical practices in Kansas City, Missouri, and moved back to Missouri. After about a year back in Kansas City, uh, Deborah started her own private practice, which was pretty successful made a lot of money, was a prosperous oncology specialist. Now is 1988, and she takes more time off for maternity leave when they had their third okay. child, Kelly. She was born in December of 1988. She wanted to go back to work, but she was having chronic pain from migraines, and okay. her work suffered because of it. This is about the time when Michael starts to suspect that Deborah is self-medicating with sedatives and narcotics to deal with her chronic pain. In 1992, she gives up her practice to become a stay-at-home mom. Uh, She works part-time out of the home uh, doing medical peer reviews and Medicaid processing. So at this point, the Farrar children are all enrolled in a private school in Kansas City where they were encouraged by their mother to pursue activities of their choice. Uh, Tim played soccer and ice hockey. Kate was a ballerina who was dancing with the State Ballet of Missouri by the time she was 10 years old. Oh, wow. Yeah, (laughs) that is intense. And I I grew up taking dance classes, and my sister does professional dance, and ballet especially is on another level of intense. Yeah, that's the one where, like, you have to, like, practically mutilate your feet in order to be good at it, right? If you're dancing on point, yeah. Yeah. Oh boy, it's it's like, oh, what's that? I no longer have toenails. That's fun. Uh, All of the children seem to have inherited their mother's propensity for intense talent and intelligence at a young age. And Deborah seemed to continue her own mother's practice of placing emphasis on perfection of talent. Uh, She always accompanied her children to their activities. She took on the role of sideline supportive parent. And some of the other parents of the other children saw her as a super supportive mom, uh, but then others felt that she drove her children too hard and put them down when their efforts yielded less than perfection. So you have witnesses on both sides. Some say they're like, yeah, she's just being a supportive mom. All the parents get real excited and intense about stuff. And then there's other parents that are like, "Uh, she's a little too intense sometimes. And it makes us feel weird. 
During this time, Michael was working long hours in his medical practice to support the family, as well as to avoid what was definitely starting to become a toxic marriage. So let's talk about what Deborah and Michael's marriage was like. Now, this is all coming from interviews mainly with Michael after the fact, but also some interviews with Deborah and interviews with people outside of the marriage who just their observations. In later interviews... Michael admitted that his marriage to Deborah was never ideal. They were drawn together because he was enthralled by her intelligence and passion while she was attracted to his calmness and stability. Uh, however, after the initial attraction period was over, Michael began to see that Deborah's passionate nature frequently came out in the form of explosive bouts of rage. According to Michael, sh she did not seem to have strong coping skills or really any of the coping skills that many adults develop in order to deal with like challenging times of their lives. Her reaction to inconveniences was sometimes driven to self-harm or to break things. Oh no. Yeah, oh no. Uh, regardless of whether she was in private or around others. Like around others? Like it was, because there's one thing when you're like mentally ill and you and you, like, behind closed doors, let it out. There's another thing when you do it in front of others. Yeah. From the interviews I saw and was reading, it sounded like she was perfectly willing to just start at least, like, throwing and breaking things just in front of other people. I don't know if she actually did harm herself in front of other people, but she threatened to. Oh, okay. Yeah. And in fact, by the early 1990s, uh, Michael started working long hours away from home in order to just avoid arguments with Deborah that were becoming more and more frequent. And also, he did this to avoid what he perceived to be Deborah's shortcomings as a homemaker. Rude. Yeah, it gets a little bit chauvinistic in some parts. He said that Deborah was chronically untidy to the point of hoarding. And she wasn't a very good cook, apparently. I bet he wasn't no frickin' master chef. Probably not. Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of this stuff we get is mainly from his perspective, because he's the one giving all the interviews. Okay. Deborah often accused Michael of spending the time he was spending outside of the house at the office. Uh, she accused him of having extramarital affairs. Okay. And, okay, when they fought... Deborah would often respond by treating the children as a, as stand-in therapists. Oh, no. And telling them what she perceived their father was doing or had done wrong. That's not okay. It's not, and it's really going to warp the kid's perception of their father to match that of their mother. If she's the one essentially raising them and she's who they see all the time, that's going to twist their perceptions to match what she's telling them. The older two, Tim and Kate, began to resent and act out against Michael. Kelly was pretty young at this time, so she might not have reached that point yet where she was old enough to act out against him. But Deborah did place this burden especially hard on Tim, who was the oldest, and all three of the children began to disobey their father and defend their mother pretty ardently. But Tim and Michael eventually got to the point where they had physical altercations. Oh, no. So, yeah. That's not good. And uh, this is early to mid-90s. Tim is pre-teen, early teen years. Like, he's starting to go through puberty, so that's also going to be making stuff. 
real unhappy. Oh, yeah. By, okay, this is, okay, so now we're in 1994. By January of 1994, Michael had grown pretty, I would assume they had both gotten pretty disheartened in the marriage, but this is the point where Michael first asks Deborah for a divorce. Deborah responded to this very explosively by shouting and throwing things, but eventually agreed to a trial separation. And Michael moved out of the family home into an apartment. He remained in contact with Deborah and shared informal custody of the okay. children. Now, once the pressure of living in the same house was gone, their relationship seemed to improve a little bit to the point where they began to attempt reconciliation. One of the biggest strains on their marriage had hinged on the idea that despite being a stay-at-home parent, Deborah made no attempt to organize or clean the house. So in their attempt at reconciliation, they decided that maybe a bigger house could remove some of the strain. Sure. Yes. Bigger house with opportunities to hoard more things. Yes. Makes perfect sense. Totally. <laughs> that goes against everything Marie Kondo has taught me. Bigger house with more opportunity, more space to hoard things, and more surface area that needs cleaning. Yep. For the hoarder who doesn't clean. Allegedly. Yep. <laughs> After about four months of separation, Michael and Deborah put a bid on a six-bedroom home in Prairie Village, Kansas, but backed out before the sale was finalized. Maybe one of them got that same line of thought of, hmm, maybe a bigger house isn't necessarily the answer. But either way, shortly after the sale fell through, the family home caught fire while Deborah and children were out of the house. The cause was determined to be an electrical short in a power cord, and the damage was pretty minimal and was entirely repairable, and the home insurance plan was going to cover the damage and the lost property. But okay. Michael and Deborah took it as a sign that they should move on from this home and revisit the idea of that six-bedroom house in Prairie Village. Okay. Uh, so Deborah and the children moved into the apartment with Michael while the purchase of Prairie Village House was renegotiated. Okay, so now they've reconciled and moved into a larger house, and both of them declared that they would put forth effort to avoid issues that caused friction before the separation. Deborah tried to focus on being a more efficient homemaker. Michael vowed to shorten his work hours so he could spend more time with the family. These improvements lasted several months but by the end of 1994 both parties had reverted back to old habits who would have guessed yeah which which is gonna happen if you're just kind of gonna gloss over surface issues and not address like the core issues that like my sister says therapy for everybody yeah, if you don't go to therapy to work out your issues <laughs> then what exactly you don't even have to have issues to go to therapy like it just helps to be able to talk to somebody who has an objective perspective and is not in the relationship yeah. and can sit there and go i see i see i see you're both being stupid yeah um so by the end of 1994 they reverted back to old habits the marriage again was in trouble However, Michael was afraid of another confrontation with Deborah, and he didn't want to cause a family upset before they had a chance to take a family trip that they had planned for that summer, organized through the children's school to Peru uh, in June of 1995. So he decided to wait until after the trip for readdressing the issue of divorce. Uh, while on this trip, to Peru, the Farrar family met and befriended the Walker family. Side note, Walker is not their real name, but I am using the pseudonym that was given to them in the Anne rulebook. 
So Celeste Walker was a registered nurse. Her husband was an anesthesiologist. And they also had an unhappy marriage. Um, Not that they were having any issues with fighting. Her husband uh, was dealing with clinical depression. And this was starting to take a toll on both his uh, physical and mental health and their marriage in general. Because he was dealing with it. But this is the 90s. It was still very popular for a lot of people, especially men. To be like, is that depression? Don't know her. Yeah. Nope. Manly. Man up. Push feelings down. No feelings. So that was starting to take a toll on their marriage. So shortly after this trip returned home from Peru, Michael Farrar and Celeste Walker began to have an affair. Oh, no. So he wasn't having an affair before when she was accusing him of having an affair. But he is now. (laughs) Rude. Yeah. That doesn't solve anything. Uh, in what's that? That doesn't solve anything. It doesn't solve anything. It just makes things worse. In July of 1995, Michael again asked Deborah for a divorce. Deborah again responded very explosively, angrily telling the children that their father was abandoning them. You don't do that. No one's in the right. Uh, in later interviews, it came out that Deborah was especially upset at the possibility that a divorce would disqualify the children from debutante events in the future, such as the Bells of the American Royal. You know, um, some high-class societies be like that. Yep. Now, this time they actually started to go forward with divorce proceedings. Okay. However, despite the divorce proceedings, initially... Michael did not move out of the family home this time. Not I guess kind of hoping to keep uh, some semblance of his relationship with his kids. He wanted to stick around for them just to let them know that, no, I'm not abandoning you. He was also concerned that uh, Deborah, despite never before being a heavy drinker, was suddenly like starting to binge drink. Oh, no. And not only was she starting to binge drink, she was starting to binge drink while she was supervising the kids. That's not okay. Not okay. For anyone involved. No. Um, and although Deborah continued to act as the stay-at-home parent, like she took the children to and from school and after-school activities, she tended to spend her evenings at home drinking to the point of total loss of what little inhibitions she had before. And especially in front of the children, uh, yelling, swearing, generally denigrating their father. Uh, Sometimes she even would drink to the point of, like, total blackout. That's not okay. There was one occasion when the kids found Deborah unresponsive and called their father at work. But by the time he arrived home, she was gone. They couldn't find her. And they eventually found her hiding in the basement. Oh! Alcohol be like that sometimes. Make you do stupid things. Especially depending on what kind of alcohol you're drinking. Uh, In August of 1995, after he had asked for the divorce, but while he was still living in the house, Michael fell pretty ill uh, with nausea, vomiting, severe diarrhea. He assumed it was a residual holdover from the traveler's diarrhea that a lot of people on the Peru trip came down with. He initially recovered from the first bout of these symptoms, but relapsed about a week later 
and was hospitalized with severe dehydration and a high fever. Huh. Uh, while he was in the hospital, he developed sepsis. No, that's how you die. Yeah. Yeah, sepsis bad. Uh, it was later identified specifically as Streptococcus viridians due to leakage through damaged digestive tissue from the severe diarrhea. Oh. They were not able to isolate the initial cause of the gastrointestinal illness itself. They were only three. They were basically they were treating the symptoms, but they didn't know what was okay. causing it. It was severe. It was life threatening, but he eventually recovered and was released from the hospital in late August. Okay, so he's released from the hospital. He's back home the first night, and that night after dinner. He relapsed again into the vomiting and the diarrhea and was rushed back to the hospital. Oh. He's in the hospital for about a week. He's released from the hospital in early September. He gets home, suffers a relapse again. Back to the hospital. You being so, poisoned? Well, the doctors are go- still going on the assumption that this illness was related to the Peru trip. And they've okay. narrowed down the possible causes to typhoid fever, tropical sprue, or gluten-sensitive enteropathy, but none of these symptoms perfectly fitted his his whatever it was he had. But he did notice that each time he returned home, he became ill almost immediately. So at this point, he's speculating that it's due to returning to a source of stress, like the dissolving marriage, or maybe it was the change from the hospital diet, like bland food, returning to normal food. Uh, his girlfriend, Celeste, has suspected another source. She thought Deborah was poisoning him. I agree with her. I agree with Celeste. I also agree with Celeste. Initially, though, Michael was like, stupid. Why would my wife who I'm cheating on and divorcing poison me? Why would she do that? That's a dumb idea. I'm a doctor. I'm smart. (laughs) Dumb people. (laughs) So this whole time, Deborah was helping nurse Michael back to health during the times when he was bouncing between the hospital and the house. Oh, she was one of those people. Yeah. She was also continuing to drink a lot. And she was beginning to claim to be contemplating suicide, as well as very loudly voicing her hatred of Celeste, who she knew Michael was having an affair with. And she was telling the kids that loudly and often. You don't do that. No, you don't. Well, you don't. She does. A lot. Most people wouldn't do that. (laughs) Most people should not do that. Okay, so late September, uh, he's back at the house. Michael finds some seed packets in Deborah's purse containing... Hemlock? Castor beans. Castor beans? That's worse than hemlock. It sure is. Uh, he also found a copy of an anonymous letter, and I have anonymous in quotes. Uh, it was a letter that he had received earlier in the month that was urging him not to divorce Deborah because it would make the community look bad. It was clearly written by Deborah. Yeah. Um, He also found empty vials of potassium chloride. No! 
Was she not even trying to hide it? So, yeah, in her, he was snooping around the house, and in her purse he found Castor Beans, a copy of an anonymous letter that wasn't so anonymous, that was telling him he shouldn't divorce Deborah, uh, and he also found empty vials of potassium chloride. Why did she think she could hide that? Um, I don't know. I... I think maybe she's the she has that thing where like she's a she's really smart and she thinks she's like super smarter than everyone else and that everyone else is stupid and she doesn't have to cover her tracks very well or uh, I don't know maybe okay. she just was assuming he wasn't going to go through her purse. Okay. <laughs> but either way uh he found these things he took them out of her purse and he hid them. He didn't confront her right away about them. Okay. Uh, however, when later he he asked Deborah what she had been planning to use the castor beans for, she claimed that she was going to plant them. And then, I don't know, there's not a lot of things you can do with castor beans. So. Um, I thought you could, like, make people sick and... There's some good DIYs you can do if you process it into oil. Yeah, yeah. That's the only thing I can think of is whenever, like, you hear stories about people are like, and then my mom made me take castor oil and it made me poop. <laughs> yeah. Like, like a good DIY laxative. Just refine them beans into oil. Yeah. Um. So that's what her initial thing, she said she was going to plant them. But when he pressed her about it, she said she was going to use them to commit suicide. Uh. So we don't know if that's what she was really planning to use them for, but seems iffy. Yeah, that seems like something manipulative. I uh, Somebody yeah. would say like, oh, I was going to kill myself because you're going to divorce me. Okay, I won't divorce you. Uh, yeah, yeah, that she definitely wasn't someone who would who would do do something like that. Yeah. Okay, so this was the day, ultimately, that Michael contacted police for assistance in placing Deborah into psychiatric care since she had clearly become a danger to herself and to others. Okay. She did not become violent against the police. But she did deny being suicidal and started launching a string of obscenities against Michael. Not against the police, though. That's uh, good. You don't, Michael, be, you don't yeah. do obscenities towards the police. That ends bad. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Michael showed the police the seed packets and the other items he had taken from Deborah's purse. And Deborah relented and was taken to the emergency room. While... At the emergency room, the attending physician found that Deborah smelled strongly of alcohol, but she did not appear to be visibly drunk. And although she appeared kind of disheveled, it didn't really appear anything beyond what someone going through a bitter divorce. Like, she was going through a bitter divorce, so the physician was like, yeah, she's going to look a little less put together than you would expect. Yeah. So after a cursory private interview, the attending physician did not note any 
strong desire exhibited by, by Deborah to hurt herself or others. However, after Michael entered the hospital, Deborah's demeanor changed drastically. She spat at him. She called him obscene names and was heard to state, you're going to get these kids over our dead bodies. Oh, no. Yeah. Which kind of is an odd way to phrase it when over our dead bodies, does she mean like hers and Michael's dead bodies as in I'll kill us both before you take these kids or I'm going to kill these myself and take the kids with me or like, Oh no, none of it's ideal. I, yeah, yeah. And I was like, none of it's ideal, but I was like, is this going to be a Romeo and Juliet situation or a Medea situation? I don't like either. Yeah. Both, both bad options. Uh, She was persuaded to voluntary commitment, but shortly left the ER without informing anyone and was found several hours later, having decided to walk home from the hospital. It's always a good move. (laughs) So they brought her back to the hospital, and again, she agreed to uh, short-term voluntary commitment. While she was in the hospital for treatment, Deborah was diagnosed with bipolar depression, with suicidal impulses and was prescribed a regimen of Prozac, Franzine, no, and Clonopin. No, no, you don't which, give a bipolar person an SSRI? Yeah, that's... And also remember, this is 1995. Uh... So they were like, you seem depressed. Take some of these things. Which it's, I understand prescribing... I understand prescribing Clonopin for depression. As someone who's bipolar, I have been on yeah, all but, of those, except the middle one, but I've been on Prozac and Clonopin. Um, no. No. You know what it did to me? Yeah. Prozac made me suicidal and Clonopin made me angry. Neither of those things are ideal. No, especially when somebody is suicidal and angry. Suicide. <laughs> is, wait, isn't Clonopin isn't what they give you when you have, like, for... For anxiety? Yeah. But what it with me okay. what it did was it it got rid of the ang- my my anxiety, but it did absolutely nothing for my irritability, which is my my mania manifests as irritability and anger. And when the okay. and what the clonopin did was it lowered my anxiety, which helped alleviate my depression and increased my mania. I might be okay. I although I might be an isolated case. I'm not going to say that it doesn't work for everyone, but for me, it made me very angry. Yeah, so they put her on all three. No! At once. Yeah. Uh, So, after four days, she returned home. Uh, That was the other thing. uh, Four days is not long enough to establish whether or not that combination of Medication you is have going to taper to yourself up. You need to build a therapeutic dose. You're talking about at least yeah. two weeks. Yeah. What is wrong uh, with the 90s? So... <laughs> I don't know. It's still recovering from the 80s. That's all I can... It was a... It sounds like a bad time. That's worse. That's worse than doctors uh... prescribing cocaine. <laughs> oh my god. 
You have oh, bipolar boy. in your brain? You should do some Prozac so, about it. So, okay, so she's in the hospital for four days before, and it was a voluntary commitment so she could discharge herself okay. at any time. And during these four days, Michael had done some research as to what you can use castor beans for, and that's when he learned that castor beans can be used to derive ricin, the uh, carbohydrate binding protein that is a highly potent toxin, also for which there is no cure. And he came to agree with Celeste Walker that Deborah had been slowly poisoning him. So upon Deborah's return to the house, Michael immediately moved out. Understandable. Valid. So. Yeah. Be valid. Good call, Michael. <laughs> yeah, also, I'd what took say, you so please long? Please tell me he took the kids with him, but you. In the beginning of this, kind of spoiled that he did not take the kids with him. Yeah, and also once again, this was the mid middle of the nineties, so he probably would not have even. Oh, got that's still two thousand nineteen, but I'm not getting into that politics. Yeah. Uh. So in the following few months, Michael fell into a routine of getting reestablished at his job at the hospital, uh, spending time with his children and spending time with his girlfriend. And during this... <laughs> during this time, he also attempted to maintain a civil, if not fragile, relationship with Deborah. However, he suspected that she was starting to fall back into her habits of binge drinking during the day when she was supposed to be caring for the children. Which, while not ideal before, is now going to be worse, since she's on... Three very strong medications that you should definitely not be mixing Agreed. with alcohol. So on October 23rd, Michael had taken the day off from work. He spent the afternoon with Celeste, and then he picked up Tim and Kelly for Tim's hockey game while Deborah took okay. Kate to ballet class. All of them arrived back at the house by 9 p.m., where Deborah and the children got ready for dinner, and Michael left to take Celeste to dinner. Okay. During the evening, he also had several phone conversations with Deborah, each of escalating levels of confrontation, in which Michael voiced his concerns regarding Deborah's drinking, as well as his suspicion that she had poisoned him. Why he would bring that up on the phone, I am unsure. Because he was scared to bring it up, um, probably, in person, given the fact that every time he mentioned anything to her, she got violent and spit in his face and threw things at him. True. During the most explosive moment of the conversation, he told Deborah that if she continued her out-of-control behavior, he would alert social services to step in and she would lose custody of the children. And they hung up on each other. Michael returned to his evening with Celeste, and Deborah returned to her evening with the children. Okay. The, the next phone call that Michael receives at his apartment was from the neighbor next door to the family home telling him that the house with his children and his wife was on fire. Oh no. Uh, and now over. we know what happened. Yeah. He rushed over and arrived to find Deborah and Kate outside of the house as the firefighters arrived. So let's talk about the fire itself. Okay. It's the early, early morning of October 24th. Very early morning. Like, it's about 12.30 a.m. Okay. Police were alerted of a problem by a 911 call that originated from inside the house, although the caller did not say anything before they hung up. Um, but this was the 90s landlines. They could pinpoint where the call originated. So 
a police cruiser with dispatch to the house and arrived and discovered that the house was on fire. The fire trucks were then dispatched at 12.27 a.m., and the fire was classified as a two-alarm fire. Also, brief side note, um, I had absolutely no idea what that meant, despite having heard the terms like one, two, and three-alarm fire multiple times in my life, and I'm an adult person. <laughs> so, <laughs> so of course, while I was looking stuff up for this episode, I opened up a new Wikipedia tab and looked it up. A one, two, and three alarm fires are categories of fires indicating the level of response by local authorities, and the term multiple alarm is a quick way to indicate that a fire is severe and difficult to contain. The initial dispatch is referred to as the first alarm. Subsequent alarms are calls for additional units to be dispatched either because the fire has grown and additional resources are needed, or that the incident is persisting long enough that the original firefighters on the scene need relief. So thank you, Wikipedia. So the first firefighters to arrive on the scene discovered Deborah and 10-year-old Kate, the middle child, uh, safely outside of the house, both in their pajamas. Kate had managed to climb out of her bedroom window onto the roof of the garage, where she saw her mother already outside below her and jumped to safety. Uh, Kate alerted the firefighters to the fact that 6-year-old Kelly and 13-year-old Tim were still inside and implored the rescue workers to help them. At least two firefighters, probably more, attempted to enter the house to search for Tim and Kelly, but by this point the fire had permeated to most of the building and they could only access a very small portion of the ground level before the structure became entirely unsafe. Oh my god. The, yeah. By the time the fire was brought under control, the house was almost completely destroyed. Only the garage and a small part of the front stonework was intact. The bodies of Tim and Kelly were not recovered until later in the morning because the authorities weren't able to search the wreckage of the house immediately because they had to wait until what was left had cooled down enough and long enough that any like lingering smoldery patches were no longer in danger of reigniting. Okay. Yeah, Kelly had died in her bed, likely due to smoke inhalation. I'm hoping that she died in her sleep because anything else is just too heartbreaking. Uh, I mean, the whole thing is heartbreaking, but I take the smallest, smallest amount of comfort in the notion that she didn't know what was happening. Okay. Tim was found on the ground floor near the kitchen. At first, fire investigators assumed he had died trying to escape, but it would later be determined following the discovery of pieces of his bed frame surrounding him and the examination of what was left of the floor slash ceiling structure that he also died in or near his bedroom and that the burning of the floor from the heat below in the kitchen caused the, the, the floor to collapse underneath him. Deborah, Kelly, and Michael were taken from the scene of the fire to the police headquarters for questioning, and the detectives began their investigation. Okay. So 
Deborah and Michael were each taken into separate rooms for questioning, as was Kate, who was accompanied by Michael's parents. So she had, uh, she wasn't just being questioned by, uh, she wasn't just an unaccompanied minor being questioned by police. She had uh, her grandparents there. <laughs> yeah, I'm fairly certain that's illegal. Yeah, it, yeah, ten, questioning a 10-year-old without their parents is generally frowned upon. Uh, let's see. According to Deborah, this is Deborah's account of the fire, uh, she had one or two drinks after dinner with the children and then retired to her bedroom. She left her bedroom once during the night to speak to Tim, who was in the kitchen, between 10 and 11 in the evening before he went to bed. Kelly and Kate had gone to bed earlier in the evening, each taking one of the family dogs with them. Oh no, there were dogs? I forgot that there were dogs until I just got to this part of my no! notes. It's worse than the kids. Yeah, it was a bad time. Oh, she's a monster. Yep. She says that she fell asleep around 1130 after speaking with Michael on the phone. She told the police that she and Michael were in the process of divorcing and that the children were upset about the idea of their parents divorcing, as most kids are. Yes, uh, but are. that she was not upset about it and, in fact, was looking forward to a new chapter in her life. Who said this? This is Deborah talking. Oh, so she's like, oh, the kids are upset, but I'm not. Yes. What does her not being upset have to do with the kids being upset? I don't understand. I don't know. I think this is, this is like the first interview with her and she's just kind of saying random shit. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know. She then says that she woke up after midnight at the sound of the house's built-in fire alarm and assumed that it was a false alarm caused by one of the dogs triggering the burglar alarm. However, she tried to shut off the alarm from the control panel in her bedroom. It continued to ring. She opened the bedroom door and she saw smoke in the hallway, exited the house using a deck that connected to her bedroom on the first floor. When she was on the deck, she says she heard Tim on the home's intercom system calling out to her and asking what he should do she told police that she had told tim to stay in the house and wait for firefighters to rescue him um no that's not no no especially since uh tim and kate's rooms were near each other in the house and he probably also could have easily gotten out onto the roof of the garage like oh, kate had no. so she then knocked on a neighbor's door to ask them to call 911 and when she went back to the house, she found Kate, who had climbed through her window onto the top of the garage. She called Kate to jump down to her, and Kate landed safely on the ground in front of Deborah. During their interview with Deborah, the police noted that she appeared very calm and not under stress, even going so far as to describe her as talkative and cheerful. They also kept referring to Tim and Kelly in the past tense. Okay, that part's a little weird, but the first part goes back to the the notion that you never know how someone's going to react to a tragedy. You never know what shock's going to look like in each person. Oh, exactly, exactly. But once again, this was in the early 90s when I think people were still kind of focused on that idea that there's only one appropriate reaction to a tragedy, and that's... Absolute despair. Like, and yeah, you're right. There is no proper way to grieve. There is Everyone's going to react differently. But I guess the... The detectives who were interviewing her were just kind of put off by the idea that she seemed, for someone that was just in a, like, in a fire in a house, she was weirdly upbeat about it. And then there was the issue that she kept referring to Tim and Kelly in the past tense, 
I'm just thinking that Sherlock episode where he realized that the husband faked his death and the wife knew about it because she was referring to him in the past tense because when someone dies, you go into denial, you don't refer to them in the past tense because your mind hasn't processed that they're gone yet. Right, right. But there was an instance in the interview when she was talking to the detectives and she was telling them about Tim talking to her through the house's intercom. She told the police... He used to be my 13-year-old. That's weird. Yeah, that's. I think that's the point when the detectives kind of started having that little, like, alarm in their head going off, like, oh, something is wrong here. That's and... just weird to say anyway. Right. You never say, oh, yeah, he used like... to be my 13-year-old son. No, he still is. He's just dead. He's just your dead son. Yeah. It's a weird way to word thing. I don't like that wording. Yeah, like, the only time, the only time I would say say that that sentence is okay is like on his 14th birthday this is tim he used to be my 13 year old he is now my 14 year old like that's the only time that sentence is okay Uh, so they've been interviewing all of them for like a big chunk of the morning it's now 5 30 a.m and the detectives who've been examining the scene of the fire arrive at the station with the news that the bodies of tim and kelly have been found in the wreckage of the home Deborah did exhibit sadness for a brief time uh, before she flipped it around and became very angry, shouting at the interviewing detectives and blaming the firefighters for not doing enough to save her children, which I think that would be more the reaction they were expecting. So her talkative and cheerful manner was now one of hostility, and she began to verbally attack the investigators, calling their methods pathetic and accusing them of withholding from her the knowledge of Tim and Kelly's deaths in order to gain more information. So she thought that they knew that they were dead the whole time they've been interviewing her and were just not telling her about it, when in actuality, they only had just gotten When in actuality, she had been referring to her children in the past tense as if they were dead all night anyways. Right, exactly. So she then demands to be the one to tell Michael about the fate of their children, stressing that she wanted to be the one to, quote, Tell my husband our babies are dead. That's weird. Uh, Not surprisingly, the police denied this request. Yeah. They were like, interesting, interesting request. Gonna go with a hard no. So, okay, it's now 6.20 a.m. The police begin to interview Michael, beginning with the news that Tim and Kelly had not made it out of the house and that their bodies had been recovered. And during the course of Michael's interview, he relayed to the detectives all of the information that I've already told you about, about the previous fire in their old house, their marital difficulties, Deborah's personality changes as the years have passed, the family trip to Peru. He told them about his affair with Celeste. He told them about his prolonged mystery illness and the subsequent hospital stays. And he told them about his suspicion that Deborah had been poisoning him. And during this interview, the police noted that his behavior seemed much more it corresponded much more to what they have like previously seen with parents dealing with the news of the loss of their children visibly shaken red eyes trembling voice emotionally uh, upset that's what they've seen in so authentic cases. yeah so and and again there's not to say there's any one correct way to deal with the loss of a loved one we all know everyone reacts differently and expresses their grief in different ways. But it's just her referring to the children in the past tense before they even told her they were dead is just, just very uh, unsettling. 
So Michael tells police that Deborah had been very concerned about money regarding the outcome of their impending divorce and thought that she may have set the fire to get an insurance payout. But he also stressed that she had never before given any indication of intending to harm the children. Okay. I guess he forgot about that phone conversation involving the over our dead bodies. Yeah, and the fact that a few hours prior he had threatened to take the kids away. And a lot of toxic people have that if I can't have yes. blank, no one can attitude. Right, right. That's a, like, I've, I would imagine that a lot of abusive relationships where the husband ends up ultimately killing his wife are that type of exactly. if I can't have you and no one gets to. Yeah. When the detectives interviewed Kate, she said that when she woke up that night, the fire was already burning to the point where she saw smoke seeping under the door of her bedroom. She opened the bedroom door to call to Tim, but she closed it again when she realized how intense the smoke was. Uh, She was the one who placed the 911 call that alerted the police from the phone in her bedroom. She crawled out of her window onto the roof of the garage where she saw her mother in the yard below. And after she jumped down to her mother, uh, Deborah didn't manage to catch her, but Kate landed safely in the grass at her feet. The two of them moved away from the burning house just as Michael arrived. Kate admitted to detectives about her mother's uh, binge drinking habit, but she also stressed that she loved and respected her mother and that all of the children had good relationships with her, but was angry at her father for leaving Ah. the family. And in, in the interview, she also was surprised to learn that Tim had not escaped the house by the same route she had by the bedroom window to the roof of the garage because like i said their bedrooms were close enough to each other that he easily could have done that so okay uh, after the three of them were finished being interviewed michael immediately filed for divorce he also filed for custody of kate who had been taken in by michael's parents after the interview and they also had her while michael and deborah were still dealing with with issues with the police. Uh, The court awarded temporary custody of Kate to Michael's parents due to Deborah's instability and also to Kate's expressed anger with her father. So that was probably the best decision that was made in Kate's interest. Deborah was allowed supervised access to Kate during this time, while Michael's visits with Kate were not required to be supervised. The fire investigators began to search through the debris of the house for usable evidence uh, in their quest to determine the origin and cause of the fire, and they very quickly ruled out common causes like uh, electrical panels and faults and the furnaces. Due to how fast the fire spread and how intense it became in such a short amount of time, they pretty much immediately started looking for... Uh, evidence of arson. They determined that although the basement of the home contained the furnaces for the house and there was also uh, evidence of two small separate fires occurring in the area in the basement. That's weird. Uh, these were not the point of origin. Yeah, it was like some, so who was, whoever was starting the fire like tried to start it in a couple other places and found like, okay, no, this is not the right spot to start it. So like there were like very clear patterns trial in, like, and error areas in the basement. On the main floor and the second floor, what they did find was pour patterns, indicating that a flammable liquid had been poured in a trail that covered much of the ground floor, blocking off the stairway from the second floor to the ground floor, and covered the majority of the hallway on the second floor. And the traces of the accelerant trail stopped at the door of the master bedroom, but had soaked into the carpeting in the hallway leading to the children's bedrooms. They weren't able to prove the type of accelerant that was used, but they were able to rule out the can of gasoline that was kept in the shed as this can was still present and untouched. 
when they began their investigation. Uh, they were able to determine the amount of accelerant used, which was between 3 and 10 gallons. Are you kidding? So, no, that was that was a so lot. So like a, 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 a car tank full of gas. Yes. Um, so, not surprisingly, they concluded that the fire was the result of arson. And on October 26th, the investigators called in a second task force to focus on a homicide investigation. On October 27th, the district attorney was informed that the investigation was now a criminal investigation. So they tested the clothing worn by both Michael and Deborah that night and took samples of hair from both of them. The assumption was that since there was so much accelerant used, there was a very high likelihood that whoever it was that set the fire would have received burns or singeing from, like, the fire flashing past the point of ignition. Yeah. Um, neither of their clothes showed traces of accelerant, and Michael's hair showed no singeing, but Deborah's hair, which had been cut twice between the time of the fire and the time the police took samples of hair, showed significant singeing. Wait, wait, how... Can you tell me that just the, the timeline from the fire to the date they did this, like how many weeks had passed? I'm pretty sure the fire was on October 25th. So this is two days later. And her hair was cut twice? Yes. Uh, this contradicted her statement that she had left the house after seeing smoke and had not come in contact with the fire, either on the deck outside her window or when calling Kate to jump down from the roof. And uh, when they interviewed the neighbors, the neighbor said that when Deborah had knocked on their door, her hair had been wet. As if it caught on fire and she doused it in water. Yes. Okay. And since her clothes didn't have evidence of accelerant on them, it's most likely that before, like after she poured the accelerant and before she lit the fire, she changed her clothes. So, sketchy. Yes. When, okay, uh, when Michael told them about the, like, his illness and the possibility that he had been poisoned with ricin, the investigators looked into the origin of where the castor beans came from, and this from, this was back in September that uh, he had turned these beans over to them. Yep. They tracked down the store that had sold that particular packet of castor beans, and they interviewed the store clerk. And a woman matching Deborah's description had ordered 10 packets of castor seeds, which are out of season during the fall, claiming that she needed them for schoolwork. This clerk would also later identify Deborah in a photo lineup. Uh, so in November of 1995, Michael undergoes surgery to treat an aneurysm that was believed to have been caused by the rice and poisoning. And before the surgery, he submitted blood samples to the crime lab to be tested for ricin antibodies. Okay. Okay, so in on November 22nd, 1995, uh, Deborah Green was arrested in Kansas City, Missouri. After she dropped Kate off at ballet practice, she was charged with two counts of first-degree murder, two counts of attempted first-degree murder, and one count of aggravated arson. Oh my god, good, uh, good, uh... Good. <laughs> yeah. Earlier in the investigation, when it was starting to look like that they were starting to focus their efforts on Deborah, 
her attorney had requested that if Deborah was ultimately to be arrested, uh, that she be able to turn herself in voluntarily. However, both the police and the district attorney felt that her behavior was too unpredictable, so they chose to arrest her without prior warning. Which is understandable. Probably a good idea, considering yeah. we now have seen evidence that when she knows things are about to happen to her, she acts unpredictably. You mean like when she knows that her husband's going to call protective services, she kills two of her kids while burning down the entire house? Yeah, like that. Okay. She was ultimately held in the Johnson County Adult Detention Center in Kansas on a $3 million bond, which was the highest bail ever asked for in Johnson County. $3 million. Okay, but how rich were they? I mean, they were, their house was, it was a pretty big house. They were both doctors. They were, they were well off. I don't think they were that well off, though. Okay. That's, well, I I don't also, um, and I don't think that either of their parents were that well off because that bond is never paid. She stays, like, she sits in jail. Okay. During the pre-trial hearing, witnesses for the state testified as to the fact that the police had been called to the home on previous occasions, uh, like when Deborah was briefly committed. And at the time, Michael had turned the packets of castor beans over to the police. The store clerk was present to testify that it was Deborah who had purchased the seeds. Medical evidence was presented that Michael's illness was not one that fit into the bounds of any known disease, but matched the symptoms of rice and poisoning perfectly. The blood samples that Michael submitted before his surgery were found to have rice and antibodies in such large amounts that the FBI criminologist provided confirmation that not only had Michael been exposed to ricin, but that he had been subjected to ricin poisoning on multiple occasions. Okay. As a side note, from what I've read about like ricin poisoning, I am amazed that it did not kill him. Yeah, because that... It takes such a small amount. It takes such a small amount of rice to kill someone, and he was exposed multiple times, and he's still alive. He's strong. He's he's very strong. And now that song's stuck in my head again from the last time we did a true crime episode. The six feet tall and super strong. Super strong. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh, boy. Uh, testimony from the first responding officers to the fire showed that while Kate had been frantic with worry regarding her siblings, Deborah had shown very little, if any, concern. But again, it is entirely possible that the, well, the medication that she was on probably would reduce displays of emotion. Oh yeah, not Prozac. Like, I mean, Prozac alone would, I think. Prozac could mellow you out, but the last two can act pretty much like a horse tranquilizer and make you like okay robotic yeah so it's entirely possible that the officers mistook this for an unemotional reaction especially if she had if she had binge drank and she was drunk and she comes up i don't know what's going on i'm drunk yeah uh uh testimony from the arson investigators showed the location and origin of the fire, the poor patterns of accelerant leading specifically to where the children slept and cutting off the escape routes. 
and the trail of accelerate leading or ending at the door of the master bedroom. Uh, the arson investigators were able to determine that the door had been opened. I, I'm not sure how they were able to determine this, but apparently they were able to determine that her door had been opened as the fire was burning, which contradicted her assertion that she only opened the door once to look in the hallway at the smoke before closing it. Again. Probably how damaged it was, or if the um, like like the the flare back into the bedroom. Oh yeah, okay. Okay, yeah, that's that's probably it. They're psychic. Her, <laughs> her defense hinged entirely on the claim that the fire had not been set by Deborah, but her defense team alleged that the fire had been set by Tim, who had once been caught setting Molotov cocktails. He was thirteen. They also attempted. A- he was yeah. I was gonna say he was thirteen. He was dealing with a lot of emotions. That's what teenagers do. They do stupid, dangerous things, but they don't set their houses on fire. Especially if they're being raised, like, in a situation where they're like, okay, you're a, you're a man now, small small boy. You're a man now, and men don't show emotions. You tamp those emotions down. They're like, okay, I have to let these emotions out somehow. It's like that It's like that. Uh, that John Mulaney bit where he's like, you know how I'm full of rage? <laughs> and, I, and he's talking about putting the, like, blowing up the eggs with... With with the with the firecrackers, <laughs> you know how I'm full of rage, and I have no outlet for it. Eggs. It's like that. Like I'm being told I can't show my emotion. How am I gonna do this? I know. I'm gonna learn how to make Molotov cocktails. Ha-ha. But the thing is, there's a big difference between making a Molotov cocktail and pouring ten gallons of accelerant in your house and burning and lighting the place on fire, taking right. you and your baby sister with you. Right. So it was, I think it was a, yeah, not a great defense. Uh, They also were attempting to blame Tim for poisoning his father because he did a lot of cooking for the family. Uh, Because uh, remember back one of Deborah's quote shortcomings as a homemaker was that she was not a good cook. So uh, apparently uh, 13 year old Tim did a lot of cooking. So they were like, well, him did the cooking. He was the one that was poisoning his father. Why are they? Why are they using the dead boy as a scapegoat? I don't know, and I don't know why she agreed to that. I don't. Now that I think about it, though, there might she might talk about that in the Anne book, which I should reread. It is as it is my favorite one, but I could not get a hold of it before I was taking my notes for this episode because the only copy in my library is checked out. Every time no. I want to check out a book for this podcast, it's already checked out. My life. But uh, there were several witnesses for the defense that testified that as a younger child, Tim had a fascination with fire and had once been caught burning some grass in the neighbor's yard. But like you said, a lot of a lot of children are fascinated by fire. Yes. As soon as you tell a kid, like, don't play with matches, it's dangerous. They're like, nothing consumes my being more than wanting to find some matches because you told me not to. Yeah. Okay, so the judge presiding over this hearing, this was, like I said, this was the pretrial hearing. They're seeing all this evidence. The judge presiding over the hearing ruled that probable cause had been shown to hold Deborah Green for trial. So her arraignment was set for February of 1996 with a projected trial date for the summer. And since this crime involved more than one victim, the prosecution planned to request the death penalty when the case went to trial. Okay. 
This resulted in a string of legal maneuverings on both sides in the late winter of 1995 and the spring of 1996. Defense attorneys requested that cameras be barred from Deborah's trial. This request was rejected. Deborah was judged by court-appointed psychologists to be competent to stand trial. She was denied a reduction in bail, so that $3 million was still standing. And the presiding judge ruled that Deborah would stand trial once for all charges rather than be tried separately on each charge. Okay. Her defense team began its own investigation at this point to disprove the state witnesses' testimony that identified the fire cause as arson. What this investigation ultimately found was that not only was accelerant used to stoke the fire's intensity, but that Deborah's bathrobe had been on the floor of the master bathroom with a burn pattern that indicated she had been wearing it when one of those unconnected fires in the basement had been set. How could they prove that? From the burn patterns on it, I guess. Okay. I don't understand, but sure, Jan. So... So her defense was like, we'll start our own investigation and ended up uncovering more evidence that's going to get used against her. So, oops. So she's confronted with this evidence, which was found by her own defense team. This is when she acknowledged that she was the one who set the fire that destroyed her home and caused the death of two of her children. So at this point, she agrees to place an Alfred plea of no contest. And once again, I opened up a new tab in Wikipedia because I did not know what an Alford plea was. So for any of our listeners who don't know, an Alford plea, which is also called a Kennedy plea in West Virginia, is a guilty plea in criminal court in which a defendant in a criminal case does not admit to the criminal act and asserts innocence. And entering an Alford plea, the defendant admits that the evidence presented by the prosecution would likely persuade a judge or a jury to find the defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So it's like, I stole, I stole am claiming innocence, but there's too much evidence and I would likely be convicted. So on April 17th, 1996, Deborah appears in court to plead no contest to five charges, two accounts of capital murder, one count of arson, and two counts of attempted first degree murder. In exchange for avoiding the death penalty, the no-contest plea called for Deborah Green to accept a prison sentence of a minimum of 40 years without the possibility of parole. Um, you argue, so arguably after, better than the death penalty. Yes. After listening to a reading of the prosecution's, prosecution's case against her, Deborah then read a statement to the court in which she said that she understood that the state had substantial evidence that she had caused her children's deaths, and that although her attorneys were prepared to provide evidence that she had not been in control of herself at the time of her children's deaths, she was choosing not to contest the state's evidence in hope that the end of the case would allow her family to begin to heal. In a press conference afterwards, her defense counsel told reporters she is accepting responsibility but I don't think she ever intended to kill her children. Okay, that's, um, yeah. I don't know how, I don't know. I, I would say if she hadn't intended to kill her children, why did she pour accelerant leading up to With the uh, and, and blocking the all the escape routes. Yeah, that's, that's my, that's my issue. And why would she do this right after she, I'm so still she, stuck on the fact that she did this hours after her husband said, if you don't get your act together, I'm calling CPS. Right, exactly. So she was formally sentenced on May 30th of 1996 to two concurrent 40-year prison sentences 
uh, minus the 191 days she had oh, already been in prison. thank goodness the 191 days were taken off. I mean, that shaves down that... <laughs> That six months <laughs> shaves that eighty, <laughs> that eighty year sentence off so so well. Yeah. She'll definitely get out of jail now. So she's serving her sentence at the Topeka Correctional Facility, and her earliest possible release date is November twenty first, twenty thirty five. After her sentencing, Deborah continued to maintain that her recollection of the night of the fire was limited. She wrote a letter to Kate claiming that she had taken more than the recommended dose of her medications that night. Uh, don't know if that's true, but if it is true, that plus the amount of alcohol she consumed, I can easily see that taking a toll on Like maybe she went into a fugue state? Hmm. Possibly. She wrote similar letters to Michael, and she sometimes claimed that she had no recollection of the night, but sometimes she also claimed that she was completely innocent of arson. In the letters where she claims her innocence, she states her suspicion that Michael's mistress Celeste had been the one who set the fire, and reiterated her claim that Tim had been the one poisoning Michael. Ugh. She'll- <laughs> yeah, so it's weird, so- I would say pick a claim and stick with it. Don't don't be like, I don't remember. I did it, but I don't remember it. I did it, but I don't remember it. However, maybe your girlfriend did it. I'm just very upset about the fact that she not only killed her son, but she then is blaming her son for his death. Like, right. It's not. It's. I mean, none of it's okay, but that's especially... I think if I'm remembering the first time I read the read the Anne Rule book, like there that was a very that was a point of contention with a lot of people. Like that was a very controversial, uh, like position to take for her defense team. Like they got a, a lot of flack I from see a lot why. of people about that. That does not surprise me in the least. Yeah. So uh, she also wrote letters to author Anne Rule. And when Rule was in contact with Deborah during research for her book, Bitter Harvest, that due to her alcohol abuse, she did not have the mental capacity to start the fire. And in later interviews with Rule, Deborah blames her mental cloudiness on her Prozac prescription. I mean, those are possibilities, but... Oh, very much so, yeah. Okay, so in 2000, Deborah has a new legal team, and they file a request for a new trial on the basis of having been made incompetent by psychiatric medications she was on at the time of the initial hearings and alleged that her original attorneys failed to represent their client adequately. Uh, however, she later withdrew this request when the prosecutors determined that they would again seek the death penalty if a new trial was granted. So the prosecution was, the prosecution was like, oh, okay, you want a new trial? All right, let's do it. We're going to seek the death penalty again, though. So she's like, oh, never mind. Um, and then in 2004, the Kansas Supreme Court ruled that the state's death penalty was unconstitutional. And so she again files <laughs> a request for a new trial based on the claim of manifest injustice, claiming that new scientific techniques invalidated the evidence the fire was caused by arson. This request was denied okay. in February of 2005. So although Deborah has not granted any interview regarding her mental state, there have been many attempts to classify her pathology based on interviews she gave with the police and her lawyers and the psychiatrists who determined her competency to stand trial. 
we know she was diagnosed as uh, bipolar in the months before the fire and from testimony from workers at the clinic when she was under observation. She also had some level of depression, but neither of those things will inherently make someone yeah. do things like that. So, uh, Psychiatrists who have read testimonies from her and about her and from other sources have attempted like to armchair uh. diagnose her, citing characteristics of psychopathy, borderline personality disorder, or narcissistic personality disorder. But, I mean, without confirmation from her actual doctors or from her, that means nothing. So, I mean, they can armchair diagnose her all they want. It doesn't mean anything. Exactly. They're not. Exactly. They're not her doctor and they're not interviewing her. From the testimonies of Michael and other people who knew her during the course of their marriage, we know that she had a volatile temper. She was prone to holding others around her as the cause of her stresses and problems and was not above turning her children against their other parent, regardless of what effect that was having on their development or stability. From reading Anne Rule's book and from reading the various news articles about the fire, it sounds like she could be a very vindictive person, prone to impulsive gestures when confronted with something that upset her, and that in the 90s it was still usually like treat the symptoms yeah. of mental illness, not the mental illness itself. And it's, I mean, it's really only now that we're starting to move away from that. I think, yeah. I think a lot of doctors are still going to do that. So that led to her being on a combination of drugs that uh, could very well have been having a detrimental effect on her behavior, coupled with the fact that she was drinking alcohol that would definitely have a negative effect, even if it wasn't combined with her medication, oh, yeah. like she was drinking in such large quantities. But whether there are other personality disorders at play, I don't think we're ever going to know that unless she agrees to further interviews. There's a ton more stuff that I could have talked about with this case, but I didn't have time <laughs> to get into because my notes are already 20 pages long. Uh, like, th there's a, like there's a whole weird angle with Michael's mistress and her husband who suffered from severe depression and he eventually died by suicide. But this happened after she and Michael were already having an affair, there was like a weird period of time where his death was cast under suspicion. There's then there's like this bit where her husband knew Deborah from medical school and she tried to reestablish contact with him when she knew that their spouses were having an affair. And like it, the whole thing just takes on this really weird, uncomfortable, like almost conspiracy angle uh, when like it's highly likely that this guy just tragically had untreated depression and died by suicide but because now there's all these crazy weird circumstances around it there's yeah. always going to be a shadow of uh what if you know cast over it there's like there's so much stuff like that in this case that i could just talk about it for days um but i'm not going to so yeah this was the case of deborah green and i wanted to do it because it's my favorite Anne rule book which is bitter harvest a woman's fury a mother's sacrifice uh, if you are able to get your hands on it, I highly recommend it. It gave me chills the first time I read it, and every time I reread it, I know what's coming, and I still get chills. The first, actually, the first time I read it, and I like, I knew nothing about this case. The first time I read it, I actually like, there were several times when I just like had to put the book down and then just walk around my living room yelling, "What? What is happening? What is happening? What is happening?" Uh, uh, this case was also featured in an episode of Forensic Files, season four, episode three.
And it was also featured in the sh- season four of the show Deadly Women. I love, th- I, that's where I heard this before. I yeah. love that stupid crappy show. <laughs> it's great. It's I love so it. It's so dramatized, but it's so great. Yeah. It's such a it's, yes. it's such a good I want something mindless and I want true crime kind of show. Yes. Yes, I love it so much. Oh gosh. But yeah, so that's the case of Deborah Green. It's a bummer. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little depressed now. Um I've been kind of sitting with my my feet on husband's lap and I think he's noticed them doing this like weird like my toes are literally curling half the time when you're saying things. Oh, I'm so sorry. But that's two weeks in a row now that I've done something that I'm just like, hey, hey, you want to be bummed out? Oh, the squonk wasn't really a bummed out in it, like, and I'm actually legitimately sad. It was just a that's such a depressing monster. Yeah. I feel bad for the monster, but oh, yeah, yeah. This so. So to our listeners, if you're if you've stuck it out through this episode, I'm I'm sorry. <laughs> Ending on a bummer. <laughs> I feel like maybe I should try to find like I don't know what can we do to come back to bounce back from this. Uh, uh, I could read a this day in history fact. Oh yes, I love those. Yes, yes, let's do that. All right, hang on one second. Uh, this day in history, the Civil War ended. Oh, that's good. Nice. All right. On that note, uh, let's tell people where they can find us. Okay. Well, if you're coming from Boston, you just got to go north mm-hmm. to find me. <laughs> I think this is my favorite running joke that we're doing. <laughs> Mine too. <laughs> you want to um, start telling people where they can find the podcast on social media? Sure. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at PFABMonsterPod. And you can find us on Instagram at TrulyFabulouslyMonstrous, which is also the name of our Gmail. TrulyFabulouslyMonstrous yeah. at gmail.com. Email us anything. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll take anything at this point. <laughs> yeah, we'll take anything. Okay. Okay, so uh, uh, next week you can tune in and hear I'll be telling you a cryptid and Hattie will be telling the true crime. Yeah. Right? Yep, so tune in next time. Next week. We'll be there, and we hope you will too. Bye! Bye!